to CDS Insight Podcast, presented by LSCSU China Development Society, featuring vibrant intellectual conversations among students, professionals, and entrepreneurs. Hello and welcome to CDS Insight Podcast. I am Violet, the Vice President at China Development Society. I'm Mo Xu, the Director of CDS. Violet and I are going to host today's interview together. So in today's episode, we are going to talk about recent global markets moves, focusing on U.S. and China. Violet will be responsible for the first part of the interview, and I'll take the second part. And today we are honored to have with us Geoffrey Yu, senior EMEA market strategist at BNY Mellon, and former head of UK investment at UBS. Geoffrey has been a frequent guest at CDS, so his outstanding professionalism has really added great value to our events and forums. So, hi Geoffrey, welcome. Thank you for coming back. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, great. So, firstly, would you mind introducing yourself to those who are not familiar with you yet, and maybe talk a little bit about what your role entails at BNY Mellon? Certainly, be a pleasure. So,、uh, my name is Jeffrey Yu.、Uh, I am currently a senior、um, EMEA, which stands for Europe, Middle East, and Africa market strategist at Bank of New York、uh, Mellon.、Uh, bank of New York Mellon is the world's largest custodial bank、uh, with、uh, over forty trillion dollars、um, of assets under custody,、uh, and we were founded、uh, by the great、um, Alexander Hamilton, amongst others.、Uh, for those of you who know your musicals,、um, uh, he um, is uh, one of the founding fathers. Um, of um, America, but also uh, uh, one of the foundational members、um, of the, the bank as well.、Uh, so, as you mentioned beforehand,、um, for about 15 years,、um, I worked at UBS,、uh, which is uh, uh, the world's largest wealth manager. So, for 10 of those years, I was also a market strategist, concentrating on currencies.、Uh, and、uh, for the last five years、um, uh, of my career, there I was with wealth management,、uh, focusing on UK clients, ultra high net worth individuals, and of course, speaking to global clients、uh, about the UK、uh, as. Well,、uh, I'm also a LSE alumnus,、uh, so I did my、uh, masters、um, in finance at the LSE、um, uh, part time、uh, while I was working in London.、Um, I went to university in America,、uh, though I uh, have um, spent my uh, life um, both in the UK and、um, in、uh, China as well, and also spent some time in、uh, Switzerland uh, with uh, UBS. Uh, so yeah, that's、uh, a bit about me. Great, amazing. Thank you for your introduction. So. Now let's dive into what's happening in the U.S. market, and let's start with the July FOMC meeting, which the Fed President Jerome Powell has made a lot of announcements. Fed has actually been using very two particular phrases: one is transitory, and the other one being substantial further progress. So those two phrases really kind of triggered debate among investors. So I want to elaborate more based on that. Now let's start with. The world transitory. It's obviously linked to the question of inflation, which is on everyone's nerves these days. And we saw that U.S. core CPI has accelerated to 4.5 percent, and the Fed raised the headline inflation projection to 3.4 percent in June. And but it's still sticking to its narrative that high inflation will be transitory. But it seems that some investor reactions are sort of countering the Fed's rhetoric. So. What do you think are some of the driving factors behind this rapid rise in inflation? And can you share your thoughts on Fed comments on inflation and also your expectation of inflation going forward? 
Of course. Uh, so transitory um, can mean temporary. Uh, so uh, for a lot of um, central banks globally, um, they see economies recovering from the pandemic. Uh, there's reopening. There's um, a massive rebound in demand um, for investment for consumption. So of course, um, this does drive um, prices higher. Um, but as the recovery evens out, um, these factors are, are expected or were expected to ease off um, as well. Another factor was um, because of the pandemic, uh, we've seen many issues with supply chains around the world. Um, I'm sure for many of your members, I'm trying to uh, um, order things uh, from mainland China and get it shipped over here. We've seen uh, longer lead times and uh, higher shipping costs. Um, you know, that's been a global issue. And it still is happening. For example, right now in Vietnam, um, for those of you who love your basketball and your basketball um, sneakers, um, it's very hard to get those right now. Adidas um, has announced it's losing several hundred thousand um, pairs um, in lost production. And we're hearing that China, uh, which has long since stopped manufacturing these shoes, um, is actually thinking about grabbing back some uh, market share. So these supply constraints, you know, be it buying shoes or clothes um, or even commodities, that has been a huge challenge over the last 18 months. And uh, that doesn't seem to be going uh, um, uh, moving um, off anytime soon. For example, in the UK, everyone is uh, working from home right now. A lot of people are working from home. Um, so they want uh, nicer gardens and garden houses and sheds. And those are becoming very, very hard um, to uh, source um, as well. So a personal uh, um, uh, example um, here, I think it was about uh, three or four weeks ago, I went to my local garden center and I just wanted to think about a tiny playhouse, you know, for my kids. Um, it was really, really small. Uh, and uh, the person there said I would have to wait until early next year for an installation. I said, are you kidding me? And, and he said, it actually is that bad. And for something that probably takes about half an hour to put together. So um, that's basically um, the other side of inflation. And that probably isn't going to ease off anytime soon. Now, now going back to policymakers, they only raise rates or they only want to raise rates based on sustainable inflation. And sustainable inflation comes from wage rises. And what we're seeing right now through data, and we saw this from data on Friday, that there are signs that wages are rising in the US and a lot of other places around the world, and they can rise on a sustainable, um, on a sustainable basis. So that would mean that household income, household cash flow, the purchasing power is going to be stronger, and that can generate much more sustainable inflation. And this is our view that it can open the door for the central bank um, of, of the US, the Federal Reserve, to start um, tapering. So basically to slow down its quantitative easing, its asset prices, uh, and for some other central banks globally, we're seeing rate hikes already. In the UK, even the recent Bank of England meeting, there's been discussion about rate hikes, um, about um, stabilizing the balance sheet or even selling assets to wind down the balance sheet. So, so um, as long as we don't see a serious derailment for global recovery and reopening due to the Delta variant, uh, we do expect the Fed um, later this month at the Jackson Hole Symposium um, to um, announce a timeline line um, or firm up their timelines before um, the end of quantitative uh, the end of quantitative easing for tapering and then we'll go from there a rate hike however we're probably at least 12 months away if not longer so as a strategist how are you positioning or strategizing in light of the expectations for inflation 
So this really depends on which asset class we're looking at. So for foreign exchange, for example, uh, the Fed uh, is driving things, and this does mean in the short term the dollar is probably going to be strong. Uh, we are not uh, really looking for uh, too many opportunities to sell the dollar right now, so that's our core view. Uh, if you're an equity analyst, I think that's far more interesting because um, uh, inflation higher sometimes means you can raise your own prices, and that helps margins. But as I mentioned earlier, input costs, um, su uh, su uh, supply pressures, PPI, uh, uh, that is very, very high right now. Uh, so your margins uh, could be compressed um, as well. And also wages, um, that's also a crucial part um, of costs um, for companies. Um, people have to pay more wages um, to, um, uh, to, uh, to a very competitive labor market. Uh, so there are a lot of dynamics um, out here. And I think uh, the outlook is much more volatile for equities. For fixed income, so if you're a bond analyst, I think that's a bit more clearer as well. Um, because in the short term, for a front-end bond market, higher rates means bond prices will fall as rates rise. But what we've seen of late is even as the Fed talked about tapering and raising rates, long-dated bond yields um, fell as well. And this is a natural reaction because if you are hiking rates as a central bank to slow down the economy in the short term, then medium to longer term, the economy will slow. And that's why medium to longer term bond yields have actually fallen. Um, but so, uh, uh, so we call that a bull flattening. Uh, but overall, right now, um, it's a relatively benign environment. And I still think the main risk um, will come from growth uh, due to um, uh, an acceleration in the Delta variant or some other factors uh, as we approach um, uh, the uh, latter stages um, of this some short term cyclical pickup. As you have mentioned, the potential taking and interest rate hikes. So moving on, let's talk about the other phrase, which is the substantial further progress towards the Fed goal of full employment and the 2% inflation target. And the Fed actually acknowledged some of the economic progress in the July FOMC meeting. And the July job report has beat expectations. So how would you interpret the potential timing of tapering and also the effects of that happening? Uh, so um, what we are looking at the timing, as I mentioned earlier, is um, a timeline for tapering, maybe to uh, start towards the end of this year. And uh, that will be followed by interest rate hikes, maybe a year or 18 months um, afterwards. Um, but going back to your point about inflation targeting and, and uh, the uh, full employment mandate. Now, only the Federal Reserve that has a jobs mandate has an employment mandate. Uh, so, of course, they would be looking not only at the unemployment rate, um, because that's subject to um, participation rates as well, but they would also look at wages. Um, um, as a signal of whether um, employment and um, uh, the labour market is tight uh, or not. And also, um, there's an ongoing debate about average inflation targeting. So, uh, right, uh, for example, inflation is high, much higher than expected right now, but we've come off a period where inflation was much lower than expected. So, do we want to actually average things out, you know, have a period where you can undershoot and then overshoot uh, and then find some equalisation in between? So, this is an ongoing debate, which we should um, hear more about. Um, some other central banks do believe in it, some are less so, and this will um, impact um, interest rate um, expectations over the medium to longer term. I think one common strand, however, is most central bankers want to avoid tightening too early. So if you want to tighten, always err on the side of being late rather than early, because if you're early and then the economy goes back um, into um, a, a contraction um, or, a strong di or, or strong disinflation, that is probably quite hard to get out of. Great, thank you. So um, do you see any um, associated risk or uncertainties as the U.S. economy recedes from the stimulus and also moves towards the policy normalization? Mm 
Right. Um, so there are three risks um, to think about. There are two downside risks, right? One is, um, of course, as I mentioned, the Delta variant. If that causes renewed lockdowns, and then we all know what will happen. Um, secondly, uh, I do think the risk um, uh, is uh, that uh, if we have um, the U.S. doing okay, but the rest of the world begins to slow, and China's growth trajectory is under question right now, Europe is kind of somewhere in between. Um, yes, the U.S. is a more closed economy. It's less susceptible to global conditions, um, but we we cannot pretend uh, that um, slower global growth outside of the U.S. will not impact the U.S. economy. Uh, so that's one thing to watch out for as well. So these are the two downside risks, one domestic, one external. Now, um, the upside risk, however, is you mentioned recede from stimulus. Well, it's only receding from monetary stimulus, right? Uh, fiscal stimulus, uh, um, we expect um, infrastructure bills um, to be passed. Um, so there's going to be additional fiscal spending um, to um, push the U.S. economy forward. And that could actually make a lot more difference um, because you can't have fiscal and monetary contraction at the same time, though the UK might try it, actually. If we have uh, monetary um, uh, easing or uh, slowing of accommodation on the fiscal side, there's ongoing stimulus. I think that would mean an upside risk to growth to inflation as well. Great. Thank you. Thank you for your insight. So, as we see, the Federal Reserve has begun debating when how to slow their asset purchase program. We also saw China's regulator's action has caught a lot of tension. So, next, let's check out what's happening in China, and I will leave this part to my colleague, Brian. Right. Thanks, Violet. And hi, Jeffrey. It's great to talk to you. by the question, yeah by the question from my colleague Violet, as we saw from last month, People's Bank of China lowered deposit reserve ratio of financial institutions by 0.5 percentage points. Do you have any comments on this policy and what does this really release to the global markets? Of course. Um, so this um, was um, a bit of a surprise, and though, uh, truth be told, economic momentum in China had been slowing um, in the one to two months and prior uh, to the triple R cut. And let's be clear what the triple R cut does, right? So it releases liquidity, it cheapens financing conditions at the front end. Um, the PBOC is in a delicate balance right now. It wants to keep uh, the lending conditions relatively loose um, for corporates, and there's a lack of private sector investment right now, but at the same time, they want to avoid a massive debt buildup. Uh, so long-end rates, real rates are actually quite tight, and also CPI is very low in China. It's much lower than where it is in the US, uh, while PPI is very high. That hurts corporate margins, and so um, as a central bank, you need to, again, uh, ease financing conditions uh, for these um, companies, uh, but you don't want to ease them to the extent that China, so-and-so called, goes back to the old habits of leverage. Um, and as we're seeing with certain real estate companies and right now, uh, this is a sector that still needs a lot of adjustment. Uh, so I do think um, that markets um, were uh, concerned more than anything else um, about the triple R cut. More is expected. Um, and in hindsight, um, as I mentioned earlier, with respect to the U.S., fiscal uh, stimulus can actually offset some degree of monetary um, uh, tightening or lack of um, stimulus on the monetary side. China this year was very clear they were intenting uh, on um, having uh, – um, somewhat tighter fiscal policy, but tighter monetary policy at the same time. In hindsight, was this the right approach? Um, probably they could have afforded to at least not um, 
have so such so strong a signal on the fiscal side um and i think this has actually uh, led um to um a weaker rebound or weaker momentum than previously anticipated and all of this is before the latest outbreak in china as well with the delta variant i mean we've seen data already surrounding um, a, a massive fall in in uh, airline capacity uh, consumer household um, sentiment is going to be impacted in the short term uh, so china has braced them for a few challenging uh, months up ahead the pboc announced them um, itself um, yesterday um, in its uh, uh, Q2 monetary policy report, the recovery is um, still um, not solid. It's imbalanced. And I think uh, these issues will be with us uh, for several quarters yet. All right. So let's talk about Chinese tech crackdown. But Chinese tech crackdown has attracted global attention, especially after the DD's US IPO, like Chinese regulators started to tighten the overseas listing conditions. Do you think this polarization will continue and how will this impact? global investors strategy. Sure. Um, I think polarizations are pushing it a bit. Uh, and if you look at the 14th five-year plan, China is very clear that they would still uh, welcome foreign participation to Chinese markets. Uh, and I think China will also continue to um, allow, tolerate um, overseas listings um, as well. So um, it's an easier way to attract international financing. And China is very keen um, to have um, foreign capital participation in China's innovation. Again, I think this is spelled out very clearly in the last um, five-year um, uh, five plans uh, uh, details. Uh, the issue right now is multifold. Um, I would distinguish um, perhaps some sui uh, generis uh, events um, surrounding individual companies um, versus sectoral level issues. Um, but at the same time, I think um, you know, this was um, a bit of a, um, a uh, lesson for international investors um, that regulatory risk will always be on the horizon when it comes to investing um, in China. Uh, but I do want to be clear, I don't think it's going to impact long-term mass allocation flows into China. Um, bonds, um, for, for sure, CGBs are still concerned to preserve assets and and we saw massive amounts of flow um, into uh, this uh, space last year we do expect it to uh, continue um, equity uh, reallocations um, so increases um, in weightings um, the um, index inclusion flows all of that certainly is going to continue so again it's something that short term of course um, has led to some uh, repositioning but i don't think it should let us detract um, from uh, the long-term outlook china is going to be the world's largest economy by the end of this decade for sure and investors are very much under invested in the chinese market china welcomes international investment uh, so uh, no matter where it's going to be listed uh, and i think um, over the longer term uh, china's share of global asset allocation will only rise all right. Thanks, Jeffrey. For the similar question, like after regulating the heavily on Chinese education industry, like for the after-school classes tutorials, Chinese government started to target online gaming industry. Like, do you think what's the true intuition behind the Chinese government policy? And as a strategist, how will this impact Chinese IT and bond market from the investor's perspective? Right. Well, I think you would be in a better position to answer that question, uh, having uh, gone through certain parts of the Chinese educational system and probably studied uh, God knows um, how much um, harder than I have and throughout my years. Um, but at, at the same time, uh, yeah, of course, you know, there is a demographic um, view here. Um, if the burden on households um, surrounding education um, is um, far too strong, um, then, um, then uh, the intention, of course, um, is to alleviate the pressure on um, parents, um, on Chinese um, 
uh, students. Uh, and I think uh, that that's something which should be understood and by international investors. Now, uh, gaming, um, I think uh, this has um, been a topic that's, be, uh, that's been on and off um, for the last few years. Um, it's not the first time we've, we've seen this. I don't think it's going to be the last time that we see similar regulation um, as well. Uh, so mental health and well-being, um, the government will have that um, in mind too. Um, and um, uh, I, I do sense uh, that uh, parents will be guided um, to um, have a view on this um, uh, uh, at a household level, right? Uh, so it's, it's got to be a partnership. Um, in, in terms of um, uh, how it's going to affect Chinese equities and, and bond markets, I don't think it's that relevant for bond markets, for example. These are uh, industries uh, which seek to raise capital through um, equity markets um, rather than bonds. Um, China's bond market is seeing more inflows. So there's going to be a large round of index inclusion towards the end of the year. Uh, so that's going to certainly um, be very favorable for um, demand. In terms of the equity market, uh, so um, the underlying strategy here is for China to continue to grow to, to um, innovate. And, and uh, when we talk about Chinese equities, we have to separate between overlist, uh, overseas listed Chinese equities uh, versus um, onshore listed Chinese equities as well. As um, Shanghai, Shenzhen, these markets um, develop um, over time, I'm sure foreign participation will rise, um, especially with Asia index inclusion. Um, but um, overall for, for Chinese companies, you know, this is not telling them you cannot um, raise um, capital um, anymore. Um, there will be new and industries, um, new forms of innovation, probably sectors we haven't heard about yet, uh, which um, will be able to um, tap markets, and I'm sure in ways which are conducive to China's growth. You know, ESG is you know, one massive area uh, where we do expect um, uh, significant um, Chinese participation up ahead, and I'm sure the government will um, absolutely encourage some Chinese companies um, to list onshore and overseas uh, uh, as well. So, again, we shouldn't let individual company or industry-level issues um, under uh, uh, cloud or um, disrupt up the overall longer term picture. Uh, can there be lessons for Chinese regulators and authorities um, to better communicate? I'm sure that can be the case. Uh, no, 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 no strategy is perfect at the first time of them trying. Um, but again, I just want, uh, don't want that to detract them from the broader picture. Uh, it's good to hear from you, Jeffrey. For the last question, you're absolutely marvelous market strategist. I started to know you since high school. Before our interview finishes, I would like to have a personal question for you. Sure. Would you love to share with our audience what mm. interests you most about this job? And could you please also give some advice for those young people who are going to go into this field in the future? Sure. Um, firstly, uh, thank you for the kind comments. Um, so strategists are a dime a dozen, right? So uh, we just try to do our best to offer some fresh ideas. Um, so uh, how did I step into this field? Um, uh, it, I went to university in the U.S., uh, so a bit of a different path compared to uh, uh, fellow LSE alumni right now. Um, I did um, have a strong interest in economics, and so I majored in mathematics and economics in university. Uh, so finance was never far away, and I was able to um, uh, secure um, some, ex um, some forms of work experience um, within the city, and uh, one thing led to another. Uh, it's important to be passionate about it, um, but at the same time, one question I often get asked is, you know, what do I need to do at university uh, to get into this um, field. Well, actually, I would say um, don't overemphasize um, books or grades or anything like that. Now, I'm not saying dismiss them outright. They're very important. Um, of course, um, you, you will need the technical skills, um, but you need to get to know people. You need to take advantage um, of um, being in London. I know a lot of students are studying remotely right now, which really is a shame, um, but it's important um, to have a feel for the market uh, when you can. So, um, and, and what really attracted me um, to uh, FX 
it's fast paced um, it's the only market which is basically open 24 hours a day um, five days a week um, if not longer uh, and um, sometimes um, by virtue of just sitting on the trading floor and listening to uh, a sudden pickup in tension amongst the traders or the sales and some screams I'm um, here or there about sudden events and then observing um, how markets move, you know, just looking at the whites of the eyes and for our traders, those things are with you for a lifetime. I mean, I was working through the global financial crisis. Um, I worked through uh, the Eurozone debt crisis. Um, uh, the most incredible day would still be um, uh, January 2015 uh, when the Swiss National Bank uh Dropped the foreign exchange um, target. Uh, so, working for the largest Swiss bank at the time in foreign exchange, uh, you can imagine we were at the centre of attention, uh, and uh, we did a client conference call. Uh, there were thousands of clients on, apparently, and I spoke faster than I usually spoke, which wasn't very helpful. Um, but it's 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 events like that which really uh, leave you uh, with an impression on you know how markets behave, especially when something that they least expected hits them. And then you learn the lessons from there. And as we say, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but often rhymes. And you understand there will always be events which markets are not going to be prepared for. Uh, so it's about trying not to be wrong um, more, uh, uh, more than trying to be right. right. So as long as your PNL, so as long as your winning trades are more than your losing trades and your average winning trade is um, larger than your average losing trade, I think then you're doing pretty well. That sounds simple, especially in FX, um, but actually it is not simple. So uh, don't having the information and having the resources around you, of course, is very, very important, um, but also get to know the people around you as well. So um, it's a, it's, it's a people-driven business. Uh, you get to know your clients, you get to know your colleagues. Um, you always have something to learn from them. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's about the accumulation of experience, um, uh, ultimately. Um, and you know, one final thing for young people who want to go into this field, into financial markets, um, I know there's a big um, attraction of um, tech uh, right now. Um, so that is not inconsistent with wanting to be in finance as well. So a lot of what finance, uh, what tech is doing is to see what they can do better than what financial markets are doing right now. No one claims financial markets are perfect. No one claims financial disintermediation through banks is perfect. Um, but at Bank of New York Mellon, for example, and I think we're one of the leading um, banks um, looking to uh, leverage the uh, crypto space, right? So I can see in 10, 20 years time, uh, from a custody point of view, 200 years uh, 200 years ago, custody was taking some banknotes and putting it in a safe, right? 20 years later, or even two years later, custody can be taking a non-fungible um, token of a random picture um, that someone made, which only exists um, on the internet, and we can custody that as well, and maybe assign a lending value to it, and do asset servicing on NFTs, right? So that is a seamless integration of tech and finance. So, um, so when um, students ask me, should I do tech or should I do finance? Well, I, I often say there's no reason you can't do both, right? And uh, when you choose, you can do both. You know, just think about the environment that you want to be in. Do you want to be at a large bank? Do you want to be at a startup? There's no right answer to this, um, but I'm sure everyone listening will be smart enough and to find their own way and uh, contribute to the advancement of uh, financial disintermediation. And at the end of the day, just make markets stronger, more resilient, um, and uh, hopefully no more financial crises. Right, that's very inspiring. Yeah. Right, thanks. This is today's episode. Thank you very much for taking your time with us, Jeffrey. And it's very good to learn from you. And yeah, really appreciate your presence. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the Inside Podcast. To learn more about China Development Society, follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and WeChat.